Welcome to the SPE Podcast, powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers. You're listening to SPE Live Gaia Talk, real decarbonization, seizing the low-carbon future. The audio from this episode was previously recorded on April 10th, 2023. And now your moderator, Deb Ryan. Welcome to this SBE Live Gaia Talk on real decarbonization, seizing the low-carbon future. My name is Deb Ryan. Uh, I'm on the SBE Board of Directors as one of the North American Regional Directors, and I'm also Head of Low-Carbon Commodities at S&P Global Commodity Insights, and I'll be your moderator today. Today's SBE Live will last about 30 minutes, and we encourage you to ask questions during the program. It is now my absolute pleasure to introduce our guest today. Tisha Shula founded Adamine Energy to provide thought leadership to energy companies to translate sustainability and decarbonization aspirations into action. Tisha advises private clients from Fortune 100 energy companies to nonprofit environmental organizations in matters including ESG and decarbonization strategies, managing disruption, energy policy, environmental justice, and stakeholder management. She has a Bachelor's of Science from Stanford University and serves as a Strategic Advisor for Stanford University's Natural Gas Initiative. Tisha serves on many academic and nonprofit boards, including those of the Breakthrough Institute, the Energy for Growth Hub, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science Institute for Science and Pology Strategic Council, the University of Wisconsin-Madison Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies, and the Payne Institute for Public Policy at the Colorado School of Mines here in Denver. And she is a member of the National Petroleum Council, an advisory board to the U.S. Secretary of Energy under the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations. Tisha, welcome to SP Live today. So glad to be here with you, Deb. Thanks for having me. No, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Tisha, you published your most recent book, Real Decarbonization, um, the, and you know, how oil and gas companies are seizing the low carbon future. Um, uh, it came out last fall. I highly recommend everybody in the oil and gas reads this. Um, I have, it's fabulous. And I'm very excited to talk to you about it today. And the obvious question today is what, what does real decarbonization mean to you and why does it matter? Yeah, so real decarbonization has two meanings. And um, before I jump into that, I just want to thank you, Deb, for having me. And thanks so much to the awesome team at SPE, um, Natalie, Johanna, Asha, my colleagues, Lindsay and Savannah also helped prep this. Like so much magic happens for this very efficient use of the audience's half hour. So super psyched to be here. And, um, and the two meanings of real decarbonization are essentially come from the notion that there's a lot of myth and misinformation about decarbonization out there. And so the first meaning is that real decarbonization only happens for the energy system globally and at scale with oil and gas, not only intricately involved, but I believe at the helm. And I'm sure we'll talk about that today. And then the second meaning of real decarbonization is the emphasis on real, that a lot of companies have made net zero aspirations, but we have to translate that to action as companies to be considered credible partners. And ultimately, I think credible civic leaders in real decarbonization. So we're going to have to translate those aspirations into actions through 10-year plans. And that's going to have to have substantial investment, reorganization, culture change, and I'm sure those are all things we'll talk about today. No, they're definitely topics that I think are, are so important for SPE members. You know, operationalizing um, energy transition and decarbonization is key. You know, we're a society of engineers and scientists, and so we're definitely going to jump into some of these things today. And so for our audience that's listening, where do they start? 
you know, what a company's doing on this journey and what are some of those first steps? So there's a really important step when companies decide to embrace real decarbonization, which is to take stock of the current state of affairs within the company, because everything that's going to happen is going to be built off the foundation of what exists today. So it's going to be important for companies to identify their drivers. Each, um, whether you're an upstream EMP focused on natural gas or you're a midstream uh, oil only pipeline company, for example, to a gas utility, the drivers are going to be completely different. And when we look at drivers, we're talking about risks, opportunities and pressures. So companies are going to need to look at that first, and then they're going to need to articulate their objectives. What do they want to get out of this? Are they reimagining their company for the next 100 years? Or are they really thinking about getting three years ahead of investor and maybe community pressures? So taking stock and then identifying objectives are the first steps. And then more or less, every company is going to fall into one of four trajectories. And those range from, we're going to remain doing our core business, but we're going to do it at the lowest cost as possible, right? This is like, we're going to stay in business and we're going to be the last company doing what we do for the lowest cost all the way to the fourth trajectory, which is we're going to reinvent ourselves as an energy company of the future. So once companies have taken stock, identified their drivers, set their objectives, and they're going to pick a trajectory. Then that trajectory guides the investments and decisions that happen from there on out. I think that's really cool. And as you talked about how the companies are taking stock of all the different things that they're looking at, you talked about risk, opportunities, and pressures. So I want to dive into this. One of the things I really loved in the book is as you've interviewed leaders as part of this, a lot of them talked about the opportunity in the decarbonized piece. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that is? Like, why do you think leaders are reframing this as an opportunity? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. One, CEOs are, I did not know this before I embarked upon this journey, but CEOs are overwhelmingly optimistic people. So you, there, there isn't a CEO who is um, a curmudgeon out there that I've had the chance to work with. And so when they see a challenge, um, the first thing they want to do is figure out, is there an opportunity here in this? And because the most overwhelming, consistent theme of our world today is volatility. Things are changing geopolitically, commodity prices, weather, whatever it is that affects your business, consumer preferences, technology evolution. The one thing you can count on is volatility. So if you already take for granted the idea that the only option that is not on the table is to do nothing, what you're really um, is setting the table for is a mindset of, well, then what are the opportunities? And then the range really comes down to whether um, leaders are thinking about a short-term opportunity or someone like Chad Zamorin at Williams, who says, our company's been here for 100 years and we're looking for what the next 100 years is going to look like. So the, the variation around opportunity is really on horizon and time frame. And I thought that was so inspiring and really um, informed a lot of the, the book from there. Once you know you have these optimistic leaders looking for opportunity, that really changes everything. Um, I really love I really love how you reframe, you know, the just the mindset of how the leaders of, of our companies are actually looking at a lot of these things. And, you know, you sort of alluded to it, but you interviewed a lot of CEOs and senior leaders as part of the book. And, you know, a lot of them are quoted in the book as well, which is fabulous. And 
So you asked a lot of these leaders about what's driving them to prioritize their energy transition. Like, are there any specific and common themes that you saw through all these interviews um, in this journey? Yeah, I think there's a couple. One is that there are a myriad of pressures around decarbonization. And um, as I argue in all of my work from the book to, to um, you know, my weekly interviews on the podcast, I really think these pressures are directional. So although politics will, you know, the pendulum will swing back and forth on politics and we'll have some maybe more extreme um, expectations around prioritizing climate, for example, over energy security, and then the pendulum might swing, swing back. What we're seeing are some directional changes around um, generational expectations around what they want from their energy system and from what they want from corporations. And then also um, just a prioritization of climate around the world and, and really across um, across sectors. So all of this means that um, if you're an oil and gas CEO, even five years ago, you could work in a company and not ever say the word climate, but that simply isn't an option today. You're whether you're privately held or or you're facing, you know, this upcoming proxy seasons stakeholder resolutions, every CEO has to be fluent in how to talk about energy transitions and the role of the oil and gas um, industry in the energy future. So I found it um I think most striking how thoroughly engaged CEOs were, but also how companies that aren't explicitly embarking on their decarbonization journey are actually behind. And I didn't expect that. I, I expected there to be more of, okay, everybody's got 10 years to get their act together. I would say, no, everybody's got 2023 to get their act together. <laughs> and then um, we really all need to have a credible story to articulate how we are both participating in meeting the energy requirements of today and participating in creating a scalable decarbonizing energy future as the civic leaders we are. Um. I really love how you dived into as well, sort of what surprised you in this. I've found as well in the last kind of 18 months, two years, as I've been working in this space as well, the conversation does seem to change. Like you've, you've emphasized in the book you talked about today, that directional change. It felt like last year, there seemed like there was going to be a conversation around the pendulum swing and was it going to come back? But you're, you're kind of indicating that that pendulum swing, maybe it's not, it's more directional. And, um, I don't know if you wanted to add anything yeah, else. Yeah, I'd love that. to talk a little bit yeah. more about that. There's a couple, I mean, there's like 5,000 things I'd like to talk about, but I'll try <laughs> to pick one. Um, so I do think that when um, Russia invaded Ukraine, we really saw how people's expectation for the energy future inform how they interpret events. So there was almost immediately a split screen. If you believed that the energy transition was maybe overblown or untethered from reality, both of which it can be, but if you felt that, then you said, okay, good. Now the world is going to prioritize um, energy security, energy affordability, uh, reliability. On the other hand, if you think that we should have been off fossil fuels yesterday, then you interpreted what happened in that invasion as we're going to accelerate the transition off of fossil fuels. Now, interestingly, both of these things are true, which is a core tenant of my work. And the reason two things can be true at the same time is because the world is complicated and good people can interpret the same events differently based on what their expectations are. What does that mean for us? That means that we have to be mindful of the fact that two things can be two seemingly opposing ideas can be true at the same time and therefore be more nuanced, more sophisticated in the way we engage. The couple ways that we can do that as energy leaders, 
One, shared aspirations, identifying the end goals that we can all share. I think it's pretty much universally accepted that we want affordable, reliable, ever cleaner energy. If we identify those shared aspirations, then we can then figure out how to work together toward those end ends. And I think that that's what 2022 really taught me was that even in a moment of, of global reckoning around energy and around climate, it didn't really change the polarized nature of the conversation. What it did was give us an opportunity, probably the opportunity of our lifetimes to start new conversations about the really important role oil and gas companies can play in the energy future. I really love that you you talked about that reframing last year. I think it was there was some really interesting points throughout the year last year when you could really tell the directional change. And, and I think that's going to be something that we continue to see. Um, in your second book um, that you published, um, Back in, was it 2020? The Game Changers Playbook, How Oil and Gas Leaders Thrive in an Era, era of Continuous Disruption. That was my COVID puppy. That was yeah. my and I have got, I have got, and I have read that book as well, and I highly <laughs> recommend it too. Um, but you talk about, and you just talked about this in your response, this wide narrative and wide range of different viewpoints that we see um, across, you know, the whole, you know, energy conversation spectrum. And you know, how do you embrace that polarization and how do you address those different viewpoints? You sort of alluded to it a little bit, but I'd love you to expand on that. Yeah. I mean, one of the most important things I think is people who work in the oil and gas industry is to simply accept the fact that to, uh, there's a lot of things that we need to accept, but a couple would be one, there's a lot of people who have negative perceptions about us as an energy industry. And often we don't get fair treatment, maybe in the media or academia, so what? Let's lead anyway. That becomes sometimes an excuse for being reactionary or defensive or, I mean, not creative about how we lead. I actually think we can embrace the fact that the world's polarized. People have really big expectations of their energy, that it like be always there, always affordable, um, expand around the world, um, and um, be totally decarbonized yesterday. And, and people have those expectations and our opportunity out of that is to create leadership and say, we too share your concerns about the future of energy in the, in the world. And we have the, the workforce, the dollars, the R and D, the investment, the infrastructure to lead in decarbonizing the energy system around the world. And that's what I want us to walk into is, is um, not taking those excuses of like, we're mistreated, people don't understand, if only they knew how important we were. Let's set all that aside. It's a waste of energy and it's a waste of time. And instead, think about the solutions that we're going to offer and the, and the, um, the bridges that we're going to build as an industry. I think the thing that you said earlier that ties back to that is those shared aspirations. It's not, you know, what are we, no, that getting rid of that us versus them and really finding those commonalities to diffuse some of those conversations is really key. Um, we've started getting some questions coming in from the audience, but before we go to those, I want to sort of shift the focus a little bit to that operationalizing, you know, and operate, you know, there's a lot of strategies out there. Companies are putting out their net zero strategies thick and fast. You know, SPE, as, a, as I mentioned at the beginning, we are engineers, we are scientists that, you know, people on the ground, doing the operational work and that's been very much around you know SPE's Gaia program has been how do we have these conversations how do we start to operationalize that energy transition you know what do you think is going to be key for companies to to actually move from talking and into that operational action 
Yeah, there's a number of things. One will be that every employee um, at companies has an opportunity today. Another recurring theme I heard from CEOs is there are more ideas and opportunities than there are people to meet them. And so in organizations, and even though our oil and gas companies tend to be hierarchical, very traditional, uh, perhaps mildly stifling to Gen Z, uh, you know, and up until recently, millennial employees, um, and yet... If you decide to become a student, both of your company's decarbonizing efforts and what's happening out in the world, the expectations around oil and gas adjacent technologies. These are things like geothermal, hydrogen, RNG. There's so many ways that our industry is going to be central to decarbonizing within the next five years, especially with all this um, IRA money coming out, for example, in the U.S. Um, so every employee has the opportunity to become a student of both their company and what's happening out in the in the energy landscape and look for opportunities to make suggestions and engage. Because ultimately, when companies do this, it's going to be fully aligned with their strategy. It's going to be core to their investments and innovation. And so ultimately, companies are reinventing themselves. It may happen on a three to five-year time frame to make sure that they are going to be the leading companies of tomorrow, whether it's in the lowest carbon molecule uh, within their space, you know, the, the, the lowest carbon intensity, for example, natural gas to be exported to Europe, or it may be a company that is going to pair CCS with their oil production operations. And there's going to be many solutions and there's really going to be infinite opportunities for employees who are paying attention to offer suggestions and get involved. Very cool. So I'm going to pull some of the questions we've had. And the first one actually came um, from Angie Lorena Garcia Ariza. So thank you so much for putting this in. And so we've been talking a lot about company decarbonization and she asked about the role of countries. Um, specifically, she asked about how low carbon countries can help, but I'm actually going to flip that as well. How does that look for high carbon countries as well, helping countries that maybe don't have a lot of energy or don't have a lot of footprint? So like I said, yeah, like what's that country perspective? Yes, I have. So I have super strong feelings about about this, which I welcome audience uh, feedback and participation on. But I sit on the board for the Energy for Growth Hub, which is focused on bringing energy at scale to developing economies because no economy develops without high energy and high energy intensity. And although there will be some ability to leapfrog the highest um, intensity, uh, carbon intensity uh, fuels, there's not going to be an ability to leapfrog industrialization. So I think actually it is a burden incumbent upon all of us in developed economies to ensure first and foremost that developing economies um, modernize and have the opportunity to raise people out of poverty and to um, have a vibrant workforce, which includes some form of industrialization and service sector. So I feel very strongly about that. And then can we do that and be decarbonizing? Yes, but it's not going to be zero carbon because we can't build an economy on things that don't yet exist at scale that we're not even putting them um, into practice and developed uh, countries. So I think there's going to be a dance. And one of, uh, I think, the world's greatest opportunities and solutions will be natural gas um, at scale in developing economies. This will allow company, countries to move from coal to natural gas in the electricity sector, to have feedstock for industrialization, uh, chemicals, 
fertilizers. Um, and so I'm uh, very bullish on a, a transition that is um, just in the truest sense, just in the sense that we don't leave countries behind and that developed economies take on the burden of decarbonizing first and lowering the cost of those things. And I absolutely am opposed to any kind of ban on fuels in um, developing economies because we just can't put constraints on other countries that we're not willing to put on ourselves. I just think that's the ultimate uh, hypocrisy. No, I, I, I appreciate that. And I think it is, like you said at the beginning, it is going to be on all of us to do it. And we got another question in from LinkedIn um, from Andreas Michael, and it sort of ties into this quite well. He was asking about the directional changes, but essentially how much of it's government and regulatory driven versus like the market driven, you know, and, and that balance. Yeah. So um, I speak as a very confused liberal libertarian mindset. So what I can tell you is the observations that um, we monitor data wise at my firm are focused on um, the public. So the electorate on employees uh, and on the way public opinion is changing. So, for example, just in the United States alone from um 2008 to now, every state has a significantly higher percentage of people who are concerned about climate change. A second uh, like directional change we see is millennials will dominate the population through 2050. Millennials are, of course, more concerned about climate than prior generations. And millennials are also um, more willing to prioritize getting off of fossil fuels. So these are things we have to pay attention to because millennials, for example, as a generation that is changing the face of um, business and politics, are now in their early 40s. So they are our policymakers, our elected officials, our investors. And so these directional changes, I think, are the things that, that won't go back and um, are actually influencing policy and politics. Now, my personal feeling is a lot of energy and climate policy has gone too far in the sense that um, a decarbonization is prioritized um, at the expense of the very many trade-offs that we have to consider, cost, reliability, global insecurity. But I think it is a reflection of the generational change that we see in consumers and in um, the electorate. So I don't expect those things to change. I do think that for a year or two, uh, we have a real moment to inject conversations about trade-offs and about doing having an orderly, a thoughtful, uh, a transition that brings um, all the countries along. I think there, there there's a window now where we can have these um, sensible uh, conversations with people that might have, have not have been open to them a couple years ago. I, I definitely think we're starting to see that. And it sort of goes back to that pendulum swing versus the directional change conversation. Mm -hmm. Do we have it all right? No. But is it moving in that direction? Yeah. Um, I think I, I completely agree with that. So you started talking about um, some of the young professionals, the millennials, the Gen Zs. Um, I, I definitely put myself in that category. Just, just, but that's okay. Um, and SPE, you know, we have a huge number of young professionals and students that make up our global membership. And, you know, as engineers and scientists, we're taught to solve problems, you know, at the core as an engineer, even though, you know, that's, that's what we do. And so as the next generation of leaders, you know, what are some of the things that our SP students and young professionals can do to really maximize their impact in this changing business, changing energy space? 
Yes, we're so lucky as an industry to have all, we still have all the generations represented. We have greatest generation um, that brought us uh, where we are today. We have the boomers that are still running most of our companies and have have brought um, a transformation of prosperity to the world around us. Um, And now, and then of course my generation, Gen X, everyone loves to forget about us, but you know, at this point we're the empowerers of the millennials who are coming along. Um, So the millennials are in their forties and then Gen Z is my kids' generation all the way through the um, our the youngest workforce that we have in oil and gas. So here's what we what I learned from interviewing leaders about how they're thinking about real decarbonization. There's of course always going to be a need for science and engineering. As you said, solving the world's greatest problems are is exactly what we're here to do. Like what greater um, engineering challenge do we have than decarbonizing the energy system? And the emphasis will be pairing that with these softer skills, curiosity, empathy, political savvy. So this was one of the other really cool things I didn't expect that I learned from my interviews. But over and over, um, companies would say the hardest part now of getting a project built is getting the permit and community approvals. And that was two years ago. Now with an emphasis on environmental justice and the very important community engagement components that are going to come with uh, with that, it's going to be even more challenging to engage with communities in an authentic way that you are a welcome guest in these projects. So what does that mean for engineers and scientists? It means that we're going to have to pair our savvy, our intellectual savvy with uh, building these soft skills, empathy, curiosity, political awareness. And that's going to be a gift to the industry because I actually think we've done ourselves a disservice the last 10 years by having like community engagement over here, investor relations over there, engineering here, maybe science over here. Uh, this is truly going to be a cross-discipline effort because um, to engage with the public, we also have to have the opportunity to really bring them along with what we're thinking and planning. So that's going to require our scientists and engineers, but they're also going to have to be quite sensitive and savvy to the way the world has changed uh, and it's not going back. I don't think we're going to build anything that where we're not an invited guest. So that's a totally different paradigm for, for building a decarbonizing energy future. It's. I would agree. It's a huge shift of how we bring all these groups together where historically everyone's been very siloed in those mm-hmm. organizations and everyone needs to be fluent across all these different aspects as well. And millennials it, and Gen yeah. Z love that. They do not want to be left in a com- in a cube with a computer. So, th- so the great thing is, is that this generational change is very um, timely and not coincidental because our audience is also the millennials and Gen Zs. Yeah. And building on that a little bit, how do you, you know, for all the young professionals and students and even, you know, myself and everyone else that's listening today, like, you know, how do you think emerging leaders within organizations can set themselves up for success in this new environment? Yeah, the one one of the um, most important, <laughs> I, I guess I'm quoting Chad Zamorin twice, but he had quite an impact on me. So he's with Williams. So he said, there's so many footballs on the field. Pick one up and start running. You might get tackled, but you might not. And I actually thought that was such a great metaphor. Now, how does that translate to you in your day to day? It means pay attention, listen to the podcasts around the energy transition, study what's going on in the environmental NGOs, listen to what's happening in places that make us uncomfortable, whether very conservative or very liberal around ESG, around decarbonization. The more insightful you can be while not getting hooked 
into the political drama around these things, the more you're going to have to offer to your company when there's opportunity to do, um, you know, shark tanks around innovation or engaging on public um, campaigns to to work within a community and figure out what what they're going to want. So the more you can be mindful of this broad spectrum of of political position and the really, really many cool things happening around the energy transition, the more powerfully um, capable you will be about being an ambassador, both for your company and for the industry. And so it really is like there's there's no greater time that you could bring your own curiosity and skill set into your company to say, hey, I think we could do things differently. And then I'll be on the other end pushing on the boards and executive teams saying you've got to bring millennials and Gen Z into your most important planning tables. And so you when those moments happen, you got to be ready. No, Tisha, I love that. And I feel like the conversation around energy transition has just in the last 18 months, just got so much more optimistic and so much more positive. What are you most excited about in terms of the opportunities for for oil and gas and and for for our industry? The thing that, I mean, I am so blessed because I do, I'm doing the work I was born to do. And it's like a super weird thing to get born to do. Like I'm going to work on decarbonization for the oil and gas industry. And um, 10 years ago, I was probably too far thinking too radically for where we were as an industry. The thing I'm optimistic about today is that I have to update and our firm has to update our thinking so quickly to stay in front of the progress of the oil and gas industry. We are going to be producing the lowest carbon molecules. We're going to be delivering them around the world. I am so excited that company leadership is transcending and ignoring a lot of this political polarization because it just doesn't serve any of us. Um, and, And the less we identify with one side or the other, the more we identify with problem, leadership, Let's bring solutions. Um, the more we're going um, to have opportunities for ourselves and accelerate decarbonization. So I couldn't be more uh, excited about what's going to come in the months ahead. Well, Tisha, we're we're reached time. Unfortunately, I want to thank everyone for putting the questions in. Um, I know we didn't get to all of them. Um, we could probably talk for another thirty minutes on this topic. It's been absolutely fabulous, and thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights today. I recommend everybody goes out and gets the book. It's really good. It's not so long, so it won't take you that long to read. Um, congrats, Tisha, and again, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next thanks, time. Thanks to SPE. Thanks to Deb, and thanks for those of you out there who are accelerating decarbonization by working in the oil and gas industry. It's an honor to get to work with you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the SPE Live podcast. For more content, visit the SPE Energy Stream, the industry's digital pulse at streaming.spe.org. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and review. Join us next time on the SPE Live podcast.